0: Our passage this morning is found, as uh, Jared said, in Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 1 and studying all the way down through verse 19. A passage that I have simply entitled, It's All Amazing Grace. Uh, Jared mentioned that the Lord blessed Charlotte and me with four sons. And like any good parent, as they were growing up, we tried to teach them some life lessons that they would need to take to heart because this is the world in which we live. This is the way things work out. And I imagine if you brought any of my four sons up here today and said, well, when you were growing up, what is the favorite, maybe not favorite, but what is the thing your dad said to you over and over and over? And I think they would probably respond, life isn't fair. And the reason we taught them that is because it's true. Uh, Life isn't fair. Uh, Sometimes life is terribly unfair. Things happen to us that are not right. Things happen to us that we don't deserve. But also, we need to recognize that though life is not fair on one side, praise God, life isn't fair on the other side where we find grace. Several years ago, a book was written by a man named Jerry Sitzer entitled A Grace Disguised. And listen to what he wrote. It's very insightful. On the face of it, living in a perfectly fair world appeals to me. In such a world, I might never experience tragedy, but neither would I experience grace. See, the problem of expecting to live in a perfectly fair world is that there is no grace in that world. For grace is grace only when it is undeserved. I understand the appeal of a fair life. But as with most things, there are two sides to every shiny coin. And in choosing one, I cannot have the other. Now listen, a fair life is one in which I get what I deserve. A fair life is one in which I do not get what I don't deserve. And then he turns the penny, a king on a cross, our burdens on his back. The only one who deserved any of it was me, was you. You see, grace is grace only when it is undeserved. It wasn't fair not to him, but that is the whole point, grace. Matthew chapter 20 is all about grace. It's a parable, what is often called an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But I like better to say that a parable is about the kingdom of heaven and the God of the kingdom. And with all of Jesus' stories, this parable is intended to shock, to surprise, and it does succeed. Now, the parable becomes even more weighty if you consider the context. Back in chapter 19, you've already studied the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him he had to keep all the commandments. And he said, well, I've kept all of these, which of course wasn't true. But then he said, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And that chapter 19, verse 22 says, when the young man heard that, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus tells him something that was utterly shocking in that day. Because like many today with the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, they equated having wealth with being right with God. They equated being rich with being under God's pleasure. And so Jesus went on to say, It is very difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when they heard this, they asked a very perceptive question, who then can be saved? And this parable in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, is going to answer that question. Now, it's very interesting how Matthew put this particular story together. He brackets it, In chapter 19, verse 30, with chapter 20, verse 16, with two very similar sayings. Look at it, chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. And those two verses are going to bracket our story and also give us insight into the fact that God's ways are not our ways, and what counts in this world doesn't count a whole lot in God's world. Four truths, then, I want to show you as we walk through this uh, remarkable story this morning. Number one, God wants you more than you will ever know. God wants you more than you'll ever know. That's the theme of chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Look at it with me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house... He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, as we begin to read through this story, one thing stands out very clearly. And that is this, the master of the house was the great seeker. The master of the house went out looking for those that he would bring into his vineyard to work for him. You know, several years ago, Southern Baptists had an evangelistic campaign, and the theme of that campaign was, I found it. And the idea was, I have found salvation, I have found Jesus, I have found a way to be right with God. There's only one thing wrong with that statement. It's not true. It's not true. You didn't find God. God came looking for you. If you're here today and you have repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ, you know deep down in your soul, I wasn't looking for God. I was in rebellion against God. I was not interested in God. And yet in amazing grace, God came looking for me. And that's exactly what you see here in this parable. It begins there in verse 1 that the master of the house went out early in the morning. He went out about 6 o'clock in the morning, daybreak. And he hired some laborers for his vineyard, promising them a denarius, which was the common wage for a day's labor in that particular day and time. By the way, keep in mind, these were people on the lower rung of the social ladder. These were day laborers. And here's the deal. They didn't work. They didn't eat. If they didn't work, their family went hungry. So the fact that the master of the house shows up is in and of itself an act of wonderful grace. And so he finds some laborers at six o'clock in the morning, and he says, "Go out and work in my vineyard. I'll pay you at the end of the day." But then look at verse three. Going about, uh, going out about the third hour. This is nine a.m. in the morning. He saw others standing idle in the agora, the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and, now watch this, whatever is right, I will give you. In other words, he gives his word, and they trust that he will be true to his word. So they went out, but then look at verse 5, going out again about the 6th hour, that's noon. And about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., he did the same. And about the 11th hour, now that would have been 5 o'clock in the evening, uh, the work day would have come to an end at 6. So he goes out, he finds a group, he asks them, why are you still here standing idle all day? In verse 7, they said to him, no one has hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So he went out repeatedly, he gathered workers repeatedly, and then he sent them out to work, some working 12 hours, That last group, apparently, as we will see, working only a single hour. Again, what I want you to understand is this. God takes the initiative in every way in this story. He sought them. He wanted them. Had he not come out there looking for them, every one of them would have gone home that day penniless and hungry. My friend James Merritt, who pastors in Atlanta, said it this way. All these workers have one thing in common. The master was not obligated to hire any of them. He could have gone to another town or a different marketplace or an alternate set of workers he could have hired. He was under no obligation to hire any of these individuals or all of these individuals. He was gracious to invite any of them, to call any of them, or to hire any of them. And brothers and sisters, God wants you to more than you will ever know. But number two, God is more gracious than you could ever imagine. Verses 8 through 15 are fascinating, and I promise you, as surprising as they are to us, they would have been equally so in the first, day, or in the first century. Uh, the workday's over. It's time to pay the workers their pay. And so verse 8 says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. So he's not calling the group first that worked uh, from six in the morning or from nine in the morning or from noon or from three. No, he calls the group that has only worked a single hour. And so when he hired, (coughs) when those hired first came, Uh, And and when they heard about it, the left hour, maybe back up. And when the evening came, verse eight, the owner of the vineyard said, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first, verse nine. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. In other words, those who worked only an hour got a full day's wage. Now, no doubt they were happy. But their happiness paled in comparison to the group that started at 6 in the morning. Why? Well do the math if they get paid a full denarius for one hour we're going to get 12 denarii for a whole day two weeks worth of salary I mean I can begin to see their excitement their exuberance their joy as the, the saying goes show us the money we're here to collect and they thought this was going to be quite a payday but Verse eleven. Now, when the, or verse ten. Now, when the, they those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And verse eleven. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. That word grumble, by the way, is in the present tense. They didn't just grumble a little bit; they kept grumbling. They kept muttering and mumbling beneath their breath. And I have no doubt what they were saying. Not fair. Not fair. Not fair. But they didn't stop with just grumbling. They then moved to make an accusation in verse 12. They said, These last workers worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have, number one, borne the burden of the day. We worked all day, And number two, we also worked in the scorching heat. So they're ticked. They're angry. Uh, Keep this in context. They're not happy for these that worked only an hour, that the uh, owner, that the the master of the house was gracious to them. Uh, They aren't interested in grace. They want law. And so they got one denarii for an hour. Certainly, we deserve more but Jesus being the kind, loving master that he is simply says there in verse 13, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity and literally in the greek text it says is your eye evil say why in the world would they use that phrase well it was a a metaphor an, an idiom in that day and it meant to be jealous it meant to be angry with someone when you felt like you have been mistreated when you have been done wrong and so in essence jesus asked them in this parable are you upset and angry and jealous with me because I chose to be generous to others. You were not underpaid. You were not treated unfairly. Again, I like the words of my friend, Dr. Merritt. Ungratefulness is the cry of the ungrateful. They had made the fatal mistake of comparing what they got with someone else and what they had. When you start comparing, you start coveting. And when you start coveting, you start complaining instead of being grateful about what God has given you you will start grumbling about what God has given someone else in other words God's kindness to you God's grace to you it's not enough when you see God being even more kind and more gracious to others and yet brothers and sisters God's God God has the right to dispense his gifts as he sovereignly chooses. The fact of the matter is, none of us in this room are owed a thing by God. Anything we get is all amazing grace. You see, the heart of a Pharisee sees grace and screams out, unfair, unfair. But the heart of a humble sinner sees grace and says, thank you. You are a more gracious God than I am. Could ever imagine but number three God's ways are more different than you and I could ever think I mentioned a moment ago that chapter 19 verse 30 and chapter 20 verse 16 sound very similar see what it says there so the last will be first and the first will be last in other words God's grace makes some who are last in this world first in his world it takes the value system of this world and turns it on its head by the way I think that's not only true in the world I think it's even true in the church I think when you and I get to heaven I believe that we're going to be surprised if I might use this image we're going to be surprised who's near the throne and who's far away who's near the throne and who's far away You see, I suspect that persons like myself, who've been given a platform and an opportunity to be in a public kind of service to the body of Christ, uh, who gets lots of pats on the back and uh, lots of kind words, not always kind, but lots of time, lots of kind words, I think if we're not careful, it can go to our heads and we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought. My suspicion is that the people that are actually going to be closest to the throne— are people that you and I never heard of in this life. People like my mother. My mother was a very simple lady with a high school education. If you put her on a platform, she would have died of a stroke immediately, just like that. It would have absolutely terrified her. What did your mother do? Oh, she worked in the nursery. She worked in the kitchen. She took cassette tapes, those dinosaur things you know that used to go on this thing. She took cassette tapes to shut-ins. In her latter years before she began to suffer from Alzheimer, she and my dad would go to three different nursing homes a week and play the piano and bring a little devotional and she just did that quietly behind the scenes, nobody paying attention, nobody noticing, but God. And God sees those ladies and those men who just quietly behind the scenes serve him faithfully because they love him and they adore him and they want to honor him. And the Bible says we may be surprised when we get to heaven who is first and who is last because God's economy is not this world's economy. It is not based upon what you do. It is based upon what God has done For you. Brothers and sisters, never forget, God does not owe us anything. We can't earn anything from God, and God's ways are not our ways. How do we know? Number four, God's solution to sin is more surprising than any one of us could have ever expected. It's interesting that Matthew, when he put his gospel together, Puts verses 17 through 19 after chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. You say, why do you find that interesting? Because I think it is a perfect, the perfect, illustration of the principle, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. You say, how so? Well, by this world standard, no one could have been put further down the social rung than a Nazarene Jew hanging on a cross. Verse 17... Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, by the way, just as a quick theological point, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation of himself. In fact, that title, Son of Man, only occurs a couple of times outside the lips of Jesus. He is not using that phrase to emphasize the fact that he was human, though he was fully human. But it is an apocalyptic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man, the Son of God, goes to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and receives an eternal kingdom. It's just another title for Messiah. So, the Son of Man, the Messiah will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Romans, to the Gentiles. They will mock him and flog him and crucify him. No one will be treated worse than him. And yet the rest of the story, he will be raised on the third day. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is the third passion prediction that you have seen in Matthew's gospel. You saw one back in chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. You saw a second one in chapter 17, verses 22 through chapter 8, verse 6. This, by the way, is number one, the most detailed of all of the descriptions. In other words, Jesus was not in the dark about what was going to happen to him as he went to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to be betrayed, he knew he was going to be crucified, and he knew that he would rise from the dead. So he gives them three different predictions, but here's what's fascinating. Each time he does, the disciples will follow up the passion prediction with a stupid statement. I mean, just terminally stupid. They'll, They'll argue about who's the greatest, They'll argue out who gets to sit on the left hand or the right hand. And all three times, Jesus, in great kindness and grace, teaches them about discipleship and the values of God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, the last may wind up first. And in God's kingdom, the first may end up Last. I saw this beautifully illustrated in the salvation of my mother-in-law. My wife Charlotte, unfortunately, was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was about seven years of age, they divorced. And after bouncing around from one home to another at the age of nine, Charlotte and her brother and her sister were placed in the Georgia Baptist children's home where she would live until she was 18. During those years, she hardly ever saw her dad uh, or her mom. In fact, when we first started dating, uh, she was not sure her mother was still alive. She had not heard from her uh, for many years. But in God's kindness, she came back into her life when she was about 16, 17 years of age. And to the best of our ability, we tried to build a relationship with her mother, Dealey Ramsey. Uh, Miss Ramsey had lived a hard life. She'd had many men in her life that had taken advantage of her, uh, had abused her, had not treated her well. And uh, she was very hard. I mean, she was a very hard, tough lady. But to the best of our ability, we tried to love her. Uh, We tried to get her to go to church with us. She would not do it. We tried to talk to her about spiritual things. She'd walk out of the room. When we had been at Southeastern just a couple of years, one uh, Tuesday afternoon... Charlotte got a phone call from one of her siblings informing us, this again shows you how dysfunctional her family was, that her mother had been in the ICU unit at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, for a number of days. And the only reason they were calling at this particular moment was they wanted Charlotte also to agree to sign off on a non-resuscitation order that if her mother stopped breathing, they would not try to resuscitate her because she was very, very sick with emphysema, and she was not going to survive much longer, and they said there would be no purpose in us doing this. Charlotte told her, her family that I can't make a decision like that over the phone right now, and she hung up the phone, and she looked at me, and with tears began to run down her face. She said, you know, I can hardly bear the thought of my mother dying and going to hell. And um, so we got on our knees and we prayed. And after about 15 minutes, I told her I'd take her out to eat over to a little restaurant in Wake Forest. And she asked me, she said, honey, do you think James, now James is the person I've studied twice this morning, James Merritt. He's a pastor in Atlanta, one of my dearest friends. Uh, She said, do you think James would be willing to go down to the hospital and witness to my mama? And I said, well, I think he would. And so I called him, got him on the phone. And he said, well, Danny... I'm going out of town in the morning, but I get back Friday. And when I get back on Friday, I promise you I'll go talk to Miss Ramsey about Jesus. I thanked him and I said, you know, she's really sick. We don't know how much longer she'll live, but I appreciate your willingness to do that. And so we went on to dinner. I was not surprised because about 15 or 20 minutes later, he calls me back and he says, you know, Danny, I don't think I should wait till Friday. Teresa and I are going to go down tonight and this friend of mine drove 45 miles from his home up into Kula Georgia down into the inner city of Atlanta up into the ICU unit of Grady Hospital he walked into Miss Ramsey's room shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with her and literally on her deathbed she repented of her sin and put her faith and trust in Jesus and was saved now listen to me, did Miss Ramsey ever get baptized? No. Did she ever go to church? No. Did she ever give any money to the church? No. She didn't do any of those good things. And you hear me and hear me well. If you have done all of those things and you're counting on those things to get you into heaven, you're gonna be terribly, terribly, terribly Disappointed. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot buy God off. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. And I have no doubt that when I get to heaven, there'll be a lady there named Dealey Ramsey, and she will be able to bear witness to the fact I am here not because of anything I did but I am here because of what Jesus has done for me. Brothers and sisters, it's all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do thank you that salvation is indeed all of grace because no one of us could ever work enough to be right before you. Our, Our righteousness, as your word says, is as filthy rags, And yet, praise the Lord, we do not stand before you in our righteousness, but in a righteousness that belongs to another that has been given to us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how I thank you that this very simple parable reminds us that salvation is all of grace. It's all of God's doing. All we do is come as these workers did with empty hands And receive from you the bounty of your grace and your goodness and Lord it is my prayer this morning that if there's even a man or a woman even a boy or girl that's here today and they realize you know I thought I could earn my way into heaven I thought I could do enough good things that God would have to accept me but now I realize I could never do enough to earn heaven I could never do enough to be right before him but I now understand By grace through faith, I can be saved if I will simply trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. And Lord, how I thank you that our Lord is the perfect example of the truth that the last will be first and the first will be last because though he was treated as a common criminal, as he was treated in a most unjust manner, today he is not hanging on a cross and he's not in a tomb but he is seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, the one who is last in this world is now first in your world. And so, Lord, may we recognize that you have a wonderful ability to turn things on their head and in the process bring us into a saving relationship with you. So, Lord, we're going to sing. We're going to have an invitation And, Father, I simply pray that your spirit might speak to hearts. If there's even one person here today or many that need to leave this place knowing I am going to go to heaven, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did for me and that I'm trusting in. And, Lord, how I praise you that your word is true. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's all amazing grace. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing. There'll be ministers here at the front. If you need to talk to someone this morning, this time is for you right now. Let me invite you to come and come right now. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.